Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Good. It's been a little while. We've, we've both had a busy summer, so we kind of, you know, been a little bit spotty on the podcast uh, this summer just because of our schedules, but um, it's nice to be back. It is nice to be back, and we're really excited about um, our interview today with Scott Douglas. Do you want to talk a little bit about him? Yes, I do. So, you know, interestingly, we've always kind of talked about um, mental health and running, and both of us as runners have always just known that uh, our mental health is in a better place after we run. And I know you and I have both, you know, run, use running a lot of times when we're um, struggling with other things in life. And it's just, we always feel better when we're done running, not only better, but I don't know about you, but I always feel more productive. I feel like I'm just, I can remember things better after I run. And we've always um, talked to our runners too, about um, the interplay between mental health and running. And a lot of our runners will tell us like, I need to run today because I need it for my mental health. Uh, and and that's true. And And we've never had somebody on the podcast to talk about that mental health aspect of running. We've talked about mental strength and mental strategy and performance related, but we've never really talked about mental health. And, uh, you know, there's that saying that, um, and maybe we have, I think we've we talked, did. We had, yes, we, we did. Had, you're right. Yes, we did. Um, Rachel, but she's yeah, so talking about say, from a therapy, from a therapist perspective. Right. And yeah. we, what we talked about with her was what, you know, that, that running, we, we have the saying that running is my therapy. Um, but it's not, it's not a substitute for therapy. Um, so that I do remember talking to her about that. I'm sorry. We, we did have that, but you know, we've been talking recently, especially, um, with a lot of people struggling for many reasons, um, COVID being probably number one, just our lives in during the pandemic, um, with people just struggling with mental health and finding that balance between, um, improving their mental health with running and, you know, is, is there too much of a good thing and what role does running play, uh, in mental health? So, um, Scott is a, a contributing writer for runner's world. He has a very, um, prolific and decades long history of, of writing in, in the running realm. Um, he was the editor of the late now, um, no longer existing running times. RIP. And, uh, yes, RIP, and the original editor of Runner's World Newswire. Um, he is an author and he has written or co-authored, um, I think to date, uh, probably like 14 or 15 books. Um, and he's got more coming out this year. Um, he has co-written two books with Meb, um, 26 Marathons and Meb for Mortals. Um, and he has also uh, written Advanced Marathoning, um, uh, the genius of athletes, which actually um, touches on the other aspect, the mental aspect of running, and that's more performance based. But what we went to him to talk about was um, his book, um, which is "Running Is My Therapy." And um, Julie, you want to talk a little bit about about the book and sort of the premise for the book? Yeah. So the book is excellent, and it's available in paperback and audible version for those who like to listen to books. And Scott in the book talks about his own um, history of running and depression and how he was curious to find out if there was evidence to support what he has found, which is of course that running has really helped him navigate through his own depression. And he realized there was no book out there about this. And I'll talk a little bit more about this. So he wrote one and the book uh, highlights a number of studies on how running not only um, helps with depression, but it is a first line means to combat depression. And often in a doctor's office, the first line means after discussing other um, non-pharmaceutical treatments is 
some type of pharmaceutical treatment. And that's absolutely fine. And many people rely on that. And I think at this point, the studies show, I believe there's 60% of people in their 50s and above are on some type of antidepressant and it works. And what Scott has found though, that running actually through these studies is as important in movement as an SSRI or some form of antidepressant. And so while the book is a little bit misleading, the title running is my therapy, and that's not what he means at all. It's a tool in his therapy. He highlights why running is an integral part of combating depression, why it's important, what it does to the brain. And it was so fascinating to read the book and also listen to Scott talk about the direct impact that running has had on him and so many others and why running is so important to our mental health. We know that we are preaching to the choir for those who are listening to the podcast, but we hope that in listening to this, you'll find that there, it, it, there's more than one way to run for mental health. And um, also we really appreciate it. And it was highlighted in the middle of the conversation that LSD pace, long, slow distance pace slash conversational pace is a great thing for mental health. And we talk a lot here about different types of training. And, uh, you know, of course, in exercise trends, when you pick up a magazine or listen to a podcast lately, it's all about high intensity interval training and having or backwards running backwards running. Oh my gosh. We have to talk about that in a second, but it's really nice to hear that that old friend of ours that we all love and crave so much that long distance pace, that long, slow distance pace is really integral to our mental health. So we really love talking to Scott and we hope that, um, everyone here enjoys the conversation. If you do please share it with others and, and tell us what you enjoyed about the conversation and, and another plug, we haven't had a review in quite some time. So if you haven't reviewed our podcast yet, we'd really appreciate it. So before we get to Scott, we want to talk a little bit about the weather. And I know we talk about the weather a lot, but it has been epically hot and humid over the last few weeks. And uh, we just want to share sort of our own experiences with it and some tips we have for anyone who's out there suffering through the swampy weather uh, this month. So Lisa, how's your running been? It's been swampy. It's been swampy. And I I will just say every day, you know, we open up our final surge comments and it doesn't matter where in the country our runners are. It usually starts with that sucked today. It was, you know, a hundred percent humidity when I went out and that felt crappy. And, and honestly, that's how I felt when I went out this morning. I don't know. I haven't looked at, um, you know, what the dew point was today, but I walked out of my house today and I was like, I can't even get a fresh breath of air. It felt so, um, and that is just, there is no um, way around it. There is no physiological way around the humidity. And it's really the dew point that is critical, not necessarily heat. Um, um, I'm headed to a trip out to the West Coast in the next couple of weeks. And I was looking at the weather out there and the temperatures are generally close to what we have here, maybe a little bit cooler, but the dew point, the humidity is so much less. And I'm really looking forward to that. So that's the big difference is the dew point. Um, so when the air is so saturated, our bodies just cannot function um, physiologically where they would on an ideal weather day. And there really are no two ways around it um, that you've got to slow down. Uh, you've got to make sure you're hydrated, not just hydration, but electrolytes make a real difference too. So I take um, two to four salt stick fast chews the night before I know I've got a run that's going to be longer um, in the heat. Um, And then I take uh, two in the morning when I wake up before I head out. And then I bring some with me and I generally try to have at least two every 30 minutes. And that is 
really important to me. And then I have some when I get home. So I'm, I'm going through those bottles of um, salt stick fast shoes pretty darn quick, but I have some when I get home too. Um, and uh, it's really just a matter of, of slowing down. And um, I, I like to go by duration. Um, you know, normally on a perfect weather day, I may be able to run a certain number of miles in an hour. Um, but on a hot day, I'm going to run less than that. But if I run the hour, I know my body's gotten the same benefits that it would, um, you know, I'd go ahead, I'd reach the certain, certain mileage. So, you know, we have runners um, who were supposed to do a 20 mile long run this weekend and they went out and they went out pretty early to do it. And they hit about 17 and a half miles, a couple that, that we coach and they got hit about 17 and a half miles in three hours, you know, a little over three hours and they finished and they were really, they, they had just cut it short. Um, it just got way too hard to run after 17 and a half. They said they started feeling like their form was falling apart. They decided to cut it short and they were concerned that that was, didn't count as their long run. And I said, that was over three hours of time on your feet. They're really, especially for those people who are training for marathons now, um, just keep in mind that anything over three hours starts to tip the balance of, you know, risk and risk and benefit. Um, so the benefit of running over three hours aerobically starts to diminish where the risk on your tendons and your muscles and your body starts to go up. So if you're out there and you're running your long run and it's three hours and maybe it's not 20 miles or the 18 miles you're supposed to hit, but you hit, you, you're, you're getting that three hours in your body is getting, that's getting the benefits of that. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something just important to remember in summer running is that maybe going by duration versus the mileage uh, helps and, and is certainly um, ben beneficial. It's, it's the same benefit that you would get um, if you're going by miles. Well said, and also pace. I think uh, all of us use our watches as a tool and it's an important tool, but try and remember that your pace doesn't matter during these, these hot and humid runs. Just get out there and run. And I think a lot of people tend to look at their data after run and say, oh my gosh, that was so slow. How about instead say, oh my gosh, I just really kicked ass and went out in the hot and humid weather and ran for an hour. And yeah, that was hard, but I reap the benefits of that. And that's an opportunity to improve your overall fitness. We all know that running in the heat and humidity while unpleasant can increase blood volume. And then that creates a training benefit. You've heard us, you know, we both talk about this all the time that um, the running in the DC or East coast heat and humidity and anywhere in the country these days is sort of like poor man's altitude training. And I will wait one, one correction. I actually read something the other day about this, that the benefits of heat training and altitude training are different. They're both, there are benefits to both, but they're different. So I was thinking, we always say that. And I was like, oh, well, it's not exactly. It is, there are definite, there the physiological changes that you experience in the heat training are different than the altitude training. So it's not um, altitude, it's not the same as altitude training, but it's still giving us physiological benefits. Well said. So, so I, I, thought, I thought, oh no, we always say that, but it's not really, it's not exactly the same um, physiological benefits. So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's beneficial, just not the same. One's more respiratory, one is more blood volume, but both are beneficial in different ways. And Absolutely. Yeah. So instead of looking and imagine at imagine how good you're going to, we're all going to feel when the temperatures drop. That's what, I keep trying. That's what I keep in my head is I keep thinking like when we get a nice cool morning, we're going to be feeling really good. Absolutely. So and also just, I really try to keep in mind when I'm slogging along in this heat and humidity. I mean, I ran this morning, I got out a little bit later than I wanted to, and I decided to just do what I planned to do. And 
my pace was exceedingly slower, so much slower than usual, but I just kept thinking, well, I'm getting a nice benefit from this run and I'm not going to come out of this run completely gassed because I hydrated. I'm running super slow for me at an easy pace. And this is allowing me to reap the benefits of this. And I came home and sure I was sweaty, but I didn't look at my watch and my data and say, oh my gosh, that was awful. No. Oh my gosh. I did that. And now I had a good run in and went about my day without really thinking about it. So sometimes we tend to beat ourselves up about our paces. And I think everyone needs to stop looking at your paces, go by effort, run an easy effort during these times when you need to do some sort of interval workout do that by effort, any hard effort, even if the pace is markedly slower than what you would normally do on a better weather day, who cares? You're still getting the benefit. It is not indicative of the impact of your, the effects of your training or of your fitness. It's indicative of this weather. That's all this is. So everyone stop beating yourself up. August is a great month to embrace the heat and get in that training benefit as much as you can before the temperatures turn cooler in time for racing season. Very well said. And if you're somebody who likes numbers and data, there are heat calculators out there. I like the one on Runners Connect. Um, that's a heat calculator. You can put in the temperature, the dew point, your training effort, like the effort, the type of run you're doing and the pace, and it will spit out a adjusted pace, which actually in my experience, has been pretty, pretty accurate. Um, we always tell people default to effort. Like it doesn't matter what numbers are, you know, showing on adjusted or what your paces are. But, um, but if you're somebody who is just really thirsty for that, what, you know, what should my pace be? Go use one of those pace calculators. So, so, um, so I think we should turn it over to our interview with Scott. You know, one thing I like about this is that, um, and, and what I really liked about his book is that um, he's open and talking about mental health. And I think a lot of people feel like it is, is something to be ashamed of or something not to talk about. I feel like maybe we're trending now more, more recently towards talking about mental health. And, um, and I think, I hope that this podcast um, gets people talking, like you said before, let people, we'd love to hear from people what you think. We'd love to hear experiences of, of you know, what, what people have experienced, because that's what Scott's book is, is based on is his experience. And during our interview, you'll hear, he talks a couple points where he says like, you know, I feel like I'm not qualified to talk about that because that wasn't my experience. So I think the more we talk about people's personal experiences, the more we learn. So um, I hope that this uh, discussion with him um, normalizes talking about mental health, just like we talk about our hamstring injury or our Achilles injury. Uh, mental health is just as important and nothing to be ashamed of. So um, that's what I hope we get out of this podcast. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great week, Lisa. Thanks, Julie. You too. Bye. Bye. Scott Douglas, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We're so glad to have you on here. Um, Julie and I have been coaching runners for, for going on 13 years now. And you know, one trend that or one constant that we've seen throughout the years in coaching runners and being runners ourselves and in our running community is that a lot of runners um, turn to running to help them um, with their mental health, help improve their mental health. And um, just runners, even if they don't come to running that way, find that running, uh, you know, helps them helps them keep their mental health strong. And um, we've always wanted to talk to somebody about uh, mental health and running and. Um, you are, uh, you know, the, the expert on, on mental health and running based on both your experience and your research that went into your book, Running is My Therapy. Um, so we wanted to invite you on today and just um, kind of hear about your story and um, your experiences and your research into um, that, that 
inter interconnection between mental health and running. So why don't we kind of just start with um, just your background and, and when you started running and um, you know how you how you came to love running. Yeah, I started running um, in 1979 when I was in ninth grade. Um, my high school was 10th through 12th grade, and I didn't know that like cross country wasn't a sport that you got that you didn't get cut from. I didn't, I didn't know cross country was a sport that like if you do, if you get cut from other sports you run cross country. So I wanted to be um, I, I wanted to be uh, ready for for um, cross country in the for in the for tenth grade, and so I started running on my own in the spring of ninth grade, and um, I just immediately uh, something clicked with me almost immediately. Um, I just I, I I loved pretty much everything about it. Um, I loved how it felt when I did it. I loved how I felt afterwards, which we'll, we'll get into. Um, I loved the sort of, um, I mean, I couldn't articulate it at the time necessarily, but you know, in retrospect, I see that I loved how it uh, gave sort of structure to my day and, and helped me decide what to do basically the rest of the day. Like, oh, well, I should eat now because I'm gonna run at such and such time and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I just loved everything about it. And then once I got to high school and was on the team, um, I mean, I liked racing, um, but the really the thing that really the sort of extra element that clicked in there was um, I became very very good friends with two guys on the team, um, and we're still you know forty years later still close friends. Um, and this whole element of, of running with friends, you know, um, that added this whole other element to it. And so I just, I, I loved it even more. Um, as to why I thought I would go out for cross country, I'm not really sure, except um, one of my sisters was friends, uh, an older sister was friends with a guy who was the Maryland State uh, cross high school cross country champion. And um, there was in our town, uh, like a, a 20 mile like fundraising walk thing that the JCs put on. And my father and I would do that every year. Um, and this guy ran it. And I thought that that was so cool that he could just like have this ability to just go out and like, I'm just going to go run around 20 miles around Reisterstown, Maryland. And, um, and I just thought that was so cool, like to be so capable and sort of self-reliant and everything. Um, and I was, you know, I was never really good at team sports. And so like to see him sort of have his own thing, that was really, really appealing to me. So Scott, what about running did you find to be appealing other than the independence? And when did you realize that there was an intersection in your life between your mental health and your running? Yeah. Um, so what appealed to, what about it appealed to me in addition to what I've said was just um, how I felt afterwards. Um, well, during, you know, unless it's like the weather that we're having on the day that we're talking. Um, but, um, you know, most days I felt, you know, I mean, I was 15 years old, like it felt good, you know, <laughs> just physically to run. And then I felt better the little bit more I went, the longer I went. Um, but then afterwards I was just always, you know, I noticed I was always in a better mood afterwards. And, um, you know, 1980, the average person, uh, certainly the average person in suburban Maryland wasn't talking about their mental health and depression and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and I didn't know anything about it, but I sort of intuitively realized like, wow, every, you know, I feel just feel better and different and more like the me that I want to be 
um, you know, when I'm running and when I'm done running and, and, and it, and it sort of makes me feel competent, like, um, in other parts of my life, you know, um, I started realizing like, oh, they, there's these lessons that I sort of happen upon when I'm running about perseverance and, and like how to, how to manage a task and all that sort of stuff that I can apply to other things. Um, I mean, so like before that I was, you know, I was a good student, but like once I started running, I became like, like a really, really good student um, in part because um, just to sort of applicable lessons from the mental aspect of running that I then applied to other parts of my life. Um, but in terms of mental health, um, I, there were, you know, I wasn't as dedicated as I am now in terms of like, oh, it's, you know, back then it was sort of like, oh, it's snowing, I can't go run, you know, which, you know, now of course that's nonsense. Um, and I noticed that on those days, or on days when I like, for whatever reason, only ran a couple miles, like it was, I was off. I was like, Oh yeah, I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't feel the way that I usually did if I'd gone and run for an hour or something like that. Um, but, it, but again, I couldn't articulate it, but my mother <laughs> who wasn't particularly like supportive of my running in terms of like, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as commonplace as it is now. It was just sort of weird to have this kid, like, I'm going to leave the house, you know, I'll be back in two hours. Uh, just running around the streets um she would say occasionally like why don't you go for a run you know like 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 she would know that I was like in a sour mood or something um and and there was nothing she knew that there was nothing else like readily available you know I guess other than drinking that would like you know could could switch things off and on like that so quickly so um so I didn't you know again I couldn't articulate it at the time it took me a while to be able to articulate that but I you know sort of intuitively I uh, noticed it and, and like I could then like I always kept a log and I could see that like when I would look back in my log at times when my mileage wasn't when my mileage wasn't all that great you know because I was like oh it's winter or whatever that there'd be a lot of like you know like another tough day another horrible day all that sort of stuff um, and that didn't happen when I was running more you know and so eventually I started more to put it together like, oh, I should run a decent amount most days and I'll probably feel better. Um, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't say, well, that's because of brain-derived neurotrophic factor or whatever, you know, or, or, or serotonin levels or whatever, you know. But, um, but I think by the end of high school, I knew because like when I went to college, I, um, I was the worst guy on the team. Um, and I like, I like quit the, the cross-country team my freshman year of uh, uh, first semester freshman year of, of college because I was just so far behind I wasn't enjoying my running and I just ran on ran by my ran on my own like I just knew like I'm just going to run you know at the time 70 miles a week or 80 miles a week just just do it just you know I'll feel better um but again it, it wasn't because oh I can this this helped I have depression and, and it helps me I just knew that my mother my life and my my um, mental Ability, capabilities were, were so much stronger if I was, you know, persistent and consistent in my running. So was there a point at which you did identify mm -hmm. um, a specific mental health condition or, you know, did, that you were able to say, this is, you know, I'm struggling in this way and, um, and I'm going to use running to help that or, you know, I have used running. At what point did that sort of, you know, you said it was, so, so, right, so at what point did it become yeah. clear? 
So in um, 1993, I was working for um, the now defunct Running Times magazine. And um, Alberto Salazar, um, you know, now a notorious figure, but um, back then, um, I mean, he was, when I was in high school and early part of college, like he was the guy, you know, and then he just like disappeared and got really bad, like pretty quickly. But in 1993, he sort of like reappeared out of nowhere. He won the Comrades um, Marathon, you know, whatever it is, 54, 56 miles in South America, you know, after doing nothing for years. And he, he talked about that he had started taking Prozac. Um, and I wound up doing some articles uh, for Running Times about this. And, um, you know, this is around the time that like, um, what's his name? Peter Kramer's book, Listening to Prozac came out. And, and you know, so, so the sort of modern um, antidepressants were, were becoming available. And um, in, in like researching this one article for, for Running Times um, about, you know, Prozac and like, does this help your running, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I was just looking into like depression itself and I was like, oh, oh my, <laughs> like, uh, you know, so like for the article, you know, I was like, you know, here's a checklist. And I was like, oh, well, I, I check, I check pretty much all the boxes. Um, except for the part, like I, I'm, I, except for the part the problem with like self-worth, I, um, either for good or bad, I've never had that aspect of depression, like that I'm no good. Um, my problem's the other end and my ego is too great. Um, so, so anyway, early nineties would be around the time. And, and, um, and then pretty soon after that, like I saw a um, psychiatrist and got an official diagnosis of um, what's, I don't know if it's still called dysthymia, but it, you know, dysthymia, which is sort of like chronic low grade, non-episodic depression. Um, can you talk, and, can you yeah. talk for a moment um, about what, what your diagnosis means in terms of day-to-day -day life for those who may not be familiar with the term. Sure, sure. So dysthymia, um, uh, yeah, it's just sort of this, I, th I think I, I think I use this analogy in my book, like, like my, I have my, my left hamstring attachment, you know, like a lot of burners have this where you, you're dry, you know, you, when you drive for more than like 20 minutes, like at the base of your butt, there's just like this tugging feeling. Like I've had that for like first, first time I ever started driving in high school. Like I had that. And so I like have this thing in my hamstring that's just sort of always there. Like it's never, it's always, you know, I'm always aware of it. Um, if I don't tend to it, it becomes very complainy and all this sort of stuff. And the sign is like that in that, like, again, it's no, it's, I've never been one who's like, I can't get out of bed this week. Um, I've, I can always go about my business, but it just sort of, there's a, um, there can be a just sort of low grade, like, yeah, really? That's all there is? Uh, sort of aspect to existence and, and reality and sort of um, inability to experience pleasure at the degree that it seems that many other people do. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 inability to find meaning in life to the degree that it seems that other people do, or to find meaning in 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 pursuits that many other people do. Um, um, so so that's that's sort of my my experience of it. Um, there's two technical terms. One would be anhedonia, which is like an inability to experience pleasure. You know, like hedonia, like hedonistic. You know, so that's pleasure. Anhedonia would be the inability to experience that. Uh, and then there's a German word called Weltschmerz, which literally means world pain. And it's like this, um, uh, 
awareness of the difference between how you would like reality to be and then how it often is. And um, when my dysthymia is, is, is bad, it can, I can sort of get too easily caught up in that loop of, of like, really? Like, uh, this is how things have to be? Like, why can't they be like this? Even though, you know, intellectually, I know that they're not gonna be like that. Um, but, but generally just sort of like a, you know, just sort of a low grade sort of buzzkill <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah, that would be, that's my experience of it. And was your um, psychiatrist or whoever you were seeing, were they um, supportive of using running to help as one of the ways to, to deal with this? Was it, was that even something in the kind of the lexicon of, of medical professionals at that point? Um, not really. He actually was a runner. Um, it was the only reason he took me on as a client because um, I was the editor, by that time I was the editor of Running Times and he, he wasn't taking on new clients, but he saw that I was. And so he took me, <laughs> he took me on as a client, um, but we never really talked about running other than he would ask me questions about like, hey, if I want to do a long run, blah, blah, blah. But we never really talked about it in terms of like, you know, it's great that you run because, you know, in relation to this and, and here's what, you know, here's what we know about um, exercise as a means of managing uh, mental health, stuff like that. No, we never talked about that. So it's really just going back to what caused you to even be able to diagnose yourself with having something, um, attributing that to Alberto Salazar. It's very interesting <laughs> because also um, it, it did at least temporarily make him faster again by going on Prozac. And so- yes classic yeah. runner we're all like yeah sign me up because right, you know? right. so it's, right. it's actually kind of cool that you came to your diagnosis not just through your writing but truly through your running too because it, it was another tool to to make you possibly faster and did did that work the same for you uh, no it did not okay it did not. <laughs> um and you know i mean so so yeah so part of what i was writing about at the time was like um was i read is everybody going to start taking prozac you know and it, and it um, the, the people who I talked to at the time who, you know, their knowledge was still, you know, pretty introductory because it was also new and there's not like masses of studies on, you know, we had 3000 people start taking Prozac and we tracked the 5k times. Um, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't have any, if anything for me, um, it, it, I, I got that, that period in my life was coinciding with like the end of my PR phase. Um, but I, I noticed when I was, so, so, you know, sort of typically my, my response to these, the, that generation of antidepressants was pretty typical in that the, you know, people will say it lops off the lowest lows and it can lop off the highest highs. And I found in my own running that, um, I, I just didn't have that last little 1.2% of drive like I need to run the last 200, these last two 200s of this workout, like need to be faster than the previous 14. Um, it was just like, I didn't, yeah, it just, it, it got rid of that. Um, and the same thing in racing. I, I was just sort of like, no, yeah, no, this is good. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't need to push harder. Um, Adam Goucher, you know, um, these days better known as Mr. Kara Goucher, but you know, um, he was an Olympian he was briefly on, on antidepressants and talked about how it, it had the same effect on him and that was his job. And he got, he stopped taking them in part because of um, that effect on, on sort of that last little bit of whatever. But again, those are personal 
experiences is not, you know, I wouldn't universalize from that necessarily. Yeah. I have one more question yeah. about your own diagnosis, and then we're yeah. going to shift to to the book. But that is, um, do you feel like the co coinciding of your diagnosis with sort of the end of your PRs? Do you feel like it gave you another purpose in your running by having your diagnosis and knowing that running sort of officially helped you manage it where before maybe you, your purpose is more about your times. And when that sort of phase of your running ended, did, did this sort of help keep you going in a different way? Um, a little bit. Yes. Um, um, like I said, I, I, you know, when I, when I like left the college team early on, I had, I was just like, I'll run this. I'll try to run this much, even if I'll never race again, you know? Um, so there was that, but yeah. Um, I mean, and then I knew, I knew, you know, certainly like through following running and stuff like everybody's PR days <laughs> and at some point. Um, and I knew that I wanted to run for the rest of my life or as long as possible. And I, you know, when I was whatever, um, late twenties, like, well, this is not a viable I need, you know, it's not a viable path for the next whatever, 60 years or whatever to, to, to keep trying to PR when obviously it's not going to happen. So, yeah, um, it, and, and that is like continued to evolve, you know, um, uh, just, just, you know, my relationship with running, um, like sustaining that relationship and everything. Um, but yeah, that's a, I hadn't really thought about that, but now that you ask that, yes, that's, that's, that's how things play out. Yeah. And what does what your running look like now? Speaking of the evolution of running. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm training for the JFK 50 miler in November. Um, down here. Great. I try, I'm sorry. Yeah. Down near us, back near us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I trained for it in 2019 and 2020 and got, uh, didn't make it to the start line cause I got hurt. And so this time I'm trying to be a little more moderate. Um, so I ran 72 miles last week. Um, which takes as long as 95 to 100 used to. <laughs> um, so that's plenty. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what I'm doing now. Um, it's, you know, I, I started that race actually when I was a freshman in college and I dropped out. And so I want to go back and finish it. Redemption. So, yeah. That sounds, that sounds great. So tell us how yeah. you got from your diagnosis and your experience um, to the book, because the book wasn't published until more mm. recently, 2018. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. how did you, how did you get um, from, you know, how did you get to, the, to, to start writing the book and tell us a little bit about the process of writing the book and getting kind of the scientific backing. You said, you know, you, you, you knew intuitively this, but yeah. how did that process work for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd always like, I'd always had this idea for, for a book like this in the back of my head and um, other stuff always just sort of seemed to come up. Um, and then um, uh, I already mentioned, yeah, um, no, uh, yeah, Alex Hutchinson, you know, who um, author of the bestseller Endure. He and I were talking once um, about like just sort of oh, these things. Like I can't get these things done that I want to get done. And Alex, Alex said like, yes, the um, what did he say? The urgent always supplants the important. And, um, I was like, you know, so finally I was like, damn it, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to get this done. Um, and I, yeah, cause, cause by the time I got around to having that conversation with Alex, um, I had assumed that a book like this would have come out and it, it didn't like there, there would be books about sort of like, I'm an MD and here's why, you know, you should go walk half an hour, three times a week sort of stuff. 
but there wasn't anything like like I'm a daily lifetime runner with um, you know a mental health diagnosis, and here's the role that running has played in my life, and 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 here's the explanation for why that why it seems to do this do what it does for me. That book just like it just I I mean I was sort of. I mean, I'm glad I got to write the book, but I was sort of surprised, like, oh, I can't believe nobody beat me to it. It seems so obvious. Um, and so I, I just, um, you know, by then I'd, I'd had um, written enough other books that I could sort of had an entry entry way into talking with book publishers and um, was fortunate to find the one that published it, um, who I've also subsequently co-written another book for. Um, and they were just really, they were, I was really um, pleased with how receptive they were and honored. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, the way, I don't need to get into details, but the way that, the way it generally works is you, you come up with, an, you know, you, you have an idea for a book and you put together a proposal, you know, and you sort of give your elevator pitch, but in, in a slightly longer form, you know, and show the publisher that there's, there should be an audience for this and why you're the person to write it and all this sort of stuff. So I did all that and they, they said yes. So. Well, I think what's really appealing about the book and what makes it compelling is that your the whole book is evidence-based and just it, a lot of it weaves in um, studies by experts and physicians. However, you narrate it and you share your own story and it's woven in with stories of your running partners and, and other people in the community who share also um, maybe depression, anxiety, and mm -hmm. have found running to be a tool. But mm -hmm. the title, I feel like once you delve mm -hmm. into the book is a little bit misleading because you're you're not just saying that running is your therapy, you're saying running is a tool in a lot yeah. of other things. So yeah, can you most book titles are misleading. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I feel like before we delve into the book, yeah, yeah, yeah. To explain a little bit, because I feel like there are some folks who listen and are very sensitive, sure. understandably to yep. that phrase for, yep. for good reason, so. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a way to, uh, book titles are a way to get people's attention, um, more so than necessarily the most accurate, um, forward summation of the contents. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I, and I say in the book, um, you know, I mean, the, the entire final chapter of the book is, you know, when running is not enough and, um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I'm in no way saying running is a cure all. Um, I mean, I, Although I'm not currently on antidepressants, I've been on antidepressants more often than not, you know, for 30 years now. I've seen, regularly seen therapists, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that said, um, I wanted to make, and not, not necessarily in relation to the title, but I wanted to lean a little bit more um, toward the running's pretty powerful um, end of the scale because so much, you know, stuff is so often underplayed. Um, yeah, so, so like one of the main things I learned writing the book was, you know, that there are clinical studies showing that exercise, um, aerobic, especially aerobic exercise, and of course, in my mind, especially running, um, is, is at least as effective as, um, the standard go-to treatments of talk therapy and or medication for mild to, mild to moderate cases 
of depression and anxiety. And like, you know, I didn't know that. That's crazy. That's crazy. I didn't know that, you know, and I don't think many people know that. And like when I was, you know, when I was working on the book, I was running with a friend and I, I was like, hey, so blah, 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 you know, I, what I said, what I just said. And he's like, that should be on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's not. Um, um, yeah, so, so, so because that, I mean, that, that's not just like, yeah, you also, you know, take your medicine and go see your therapist. And, yeah, if you can get out and do some exercise, you know, that'll help. Um, you know, that's not what the evidence shows. The evidence shows that, that it can be as I said, at least as effective as, as these other standard forms of treatment. Um, and very, very few people know that. So I wanted to, you know, sort of push on that a little bit. Um, again, that doesn't mean running is my only therapy, <laughs> um, but, but, but it's a profound one and, and an easily available one with side effects that are almost entirely positive. Um, and that um, as long as you don't go by the $250 shoes, not terribly expensive, um, you know? So, yeah, so it's a long answer, but um, yeah, I, I, I wanna come down on the side of like a little more emphasis on, on the efficacy of running, um, not just, oh, you'll feel, you'll be in a better mood, but, but, but like scientific proof of, of, um, of improvements in symptoms of depression and anxiety. And is that specific to running or you mentioned exercise, but is there right. something specific about running that makes it other than it's, you said, like accessible and affordable. Yeah. Um, is there something specific about running? There, there are not, there are not studies um, where you've had the same group of people running and then stopping running and rowing for six weeks and then stopping that and cycling. So no, most of the, you know, so, so when I say running, in terms of the research, I mean, extra, I mean exercise. And given study populations, they're more likely to be um, probably lower fitness people that are tracked. Um, but I would, I would argue that running, um, I mean, the main, th the main thing is to, to achieve the, the benefits from um, exercise, as a more general term, is consistency. Um, and not just consistency on a daily basis, but, but in terms of, and we can get into this, but in terms of like the beneficial brain changes seem to happen most at a sort of sustained, moderate uh, exercise level. And any runner who has ever, you know, been banished to cross training hell knows that it's just not, the, it's just not the same. Um, not only in terms of the mood stuff, but just, but just like getting in that groove, getting in that flow is so much harder in, in, in activities where if it's walking, you have to walk really, really like it's fast enough that it's uncomfortable. Um, if your cycling has, you know, cycling, swimming, have cross country skiing, have like technique uh, limitations for certainly for me, for the more uncoordinated among us, um, cycling, you might, uh, you know, your heart, cycling, your intensity levels all over the place, given, you know, given changes in topography, et cetera. So, you know, one of my arguments in the book is like running is sort of like, um, incredibly efficient and, um, and, and, um, very easy to immediately, almost immediately get in that, that sort of moderate effort, uh, sustained, um, effort level that is 
the effort level that in research um, mo most often shows these these beneficial cha changes. And and again, you don't you know you half an hour running is pretty good. You know, um, half hour cycling, you, you know, that's not doing a whole lot. So you brought up some interesting points we we're going to ask. There's a lot of people who find walking to be a, a comfort similar yep. to running because yeah, of I love walking. the yeah. repeated patterns, but it's interesting how you share. It's actually not just the movement in and of itself, but it's also the intensity of it. Yeah. Or, yeah. So um, would you say that then from the studies that have been presented in your book, that it's that conversational pace intensity that derives, provides the most benefit that's, that's, yes, that, that's a good way of, that's a good, effective way of, of describing it. Yes. So there's one study um, I talk about in the book, um, uh, a, a researcher named David Raishlin, who he, he did um, treadmill tests with humans, dogs, and ferrets, um, and, and had each of, had um, the humans and dogs, the ferrets, the ferrets basically you couldn't get them to do much but um the humans and dogs you know on a treadmill at different intensity levels and he measured um endocannabinoids so cannabinoids you know cannabis it's endocannabinoids are sort of your body's internal um cannabis system um when people take cbd or or thc you know, it's interacting with their internal endocannabinoid, endo being internal, their endocannabinoid system. Um, and it's theorized that endocannabinoids, so, so you can you can track that these brain chemicals called endocannabinoids are, are, you know, you can track their levels in the blood. And it's very easy for a guy like David Raishlin, researcher, to to measure blood levels of endocannabinoids, you know, before and after a 20 or 30 minute treadmill bout. And so he had the, like the people, they walked, they ran at a moderate pace, and then they ran like closer to like 5K, 5K effort and measured, you know, what, what happened to their endocannabinoid levels. Um, and the greatest levels of increase were after the moderate, as you said, conversational pace. Um, effort, um, you know, 5k pace, you're sort of dealing with a lot more, uh, internal, uh, stuff, <laughs> um, that gets in the way of just feeling good. Right. Um, uh, he, he, so he did dogs and ferrets because dogs also have an endocannabinoid system. Um, and he was looking at it in terms of he, he's a, he's by, he's by training an anthropologist and he was looking at it uh, from the standpoint of the, the whole idea of like, did we develop this sort of internal reward system in our ancestral past to, uh, um, did, this, did this develop to reward uh, persistence hunting? So, so, you know, the idea that a long time ago, our, our, our ancestors, you could track down um, game, you know, needed, you know, if their bodies gave them reward as they kept doing it, they'd be more likely to catch the game and then therefore obviously more likely to eat and survive and pass on their genes. And he did dogs because dogs also, you know, run after, whereas ferrets don't. <laughs> and uh, ferret, yeah, so the ferrets endocannabinoid levels just, you know, nothing happened with them. But yeah, but the dog, the dogs also sort of followed the same pattern as the humans. Um, sorry, just a long, long answer, but um, 
in this one instance, for example, yeah, there's there's good support for the sort of conversational level of, of running being sort of the the one that has the highest uh, sort of feel good brain chemical chemical boost. And did the studies um, at all sort of clarify how many days a week one would need to run at that particular pace to no. benefit? Okay, that, that one did not. Um, that was just you know that was like a one off of. If I if people will go for whatever it was twenty or thirty minutes at this separate level versus this separate level, that's what I, yeah. But um, the other big thing that I wanted to learn in writing the book was, um, and this is related to your question, was you know okay so I know I go out and run and I feel better while I'm doing it. I feel better afterwards. Um, does that matter the next day? Right? Or am I starting from absolute scratch? You know, am I back to square zero? You know, as if, and and um, the answer is no. There is not. You're not going back to 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 you know the starting point. Over time, there are changes in your brain from this regular exposure to these chemicals, um, and there are uh, changes such as there's growth in the part of the brain called the hippocampus, which um, is associated with memory, but tends to be shrunk, shrinken, whatever the correct word is, smaller in people with uh, depression, especially depression. Um, and then there's also like sort of rewiring, um, um, better wiring basically in your brain um, among, among parts of the brain. And what's, so, so that's to me very profound. Like, so it's not just like, oh, running puts me in a better mood. But then as soon as I get home and, you know, I've got all these stuff coming up on Slack and people, you know, people want me to do stuff I don't want to do, then that's that for the day, right? Um, there's a cumulative effect. Um, so that, that's profound. And then the other, <laughs> the part B of that profoundness to me is that those are, those physical changes in the brain are, the same as what are thought to underlie um, the effectiveness of antidepressants. So, so you're sort of doing the same, getting the same effect uh, from, from that, there, that is thought to explain antidepressants effectiveness. Um, again, without side effects, except, you know, <laughs> looking and feeling better um, and being healthier. Um, and so, you know, obviously, as you know, your coaches, you know, you, that doesn't happen. You know, you're not going to get, you don't build up other systemic body changes by going once a week, right? Um, I mean, what, what would you, you would tell people probably like, if you really want to, you know, three to four days a week, it's probably, right? I mean, just in terms of like setting aside the brain stuff, you know, if you want them to improve their cardiovascular fitness, you know, three to, you know, you probably, you probably say three to four days at least a week. Yeah. Scott, you alluded to, and, and we talked talked a little bit about this earlier when you were, you know, in school and you were running and you'd feel like sharper thinking. What are the other effects? You know, we're talking here about the kind of the effect on depression, but what about yeah. um, memory? You know, we all yeah. come back from runs and we feel like we're productive and you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. think through a lot of things. What are the other effects that running can have on on the brain? Yeah, so so I mean, for everybody, there's there's good evidence of both short term and long term. Um, you know, you know, we like to say, oh, running makes you smarter. And, and it, it doesn't make you smarter than other people, but it, it, I think it's 
pretty safe to say it makes you smarter than you otherwise would be. Um, maybe not after right the second you step in the door from a two-hour run, <laughs> maybe you're sort of brain dead. But um, but yeah, there's you know things like working memory, which is sort of like you, you know your brain like acting like a computer. Um, things like executive function, which is um, um, the analogy that a, a researcher gave me that I use in the book is like if you're preparing like a eight dish Thanksgiving dinner that you know, everything needs to be ready at the same time. Executive function is the ability to sort of uh, have your brain sort of go through a series of tasks and figure out how to how to do them in the best order. Um, so those, those are two big ones. Um, and again, those things happen both acutely, but then over time um, in a more profound and sustained way. I mean, again, because if you think about it, you're like, it's just weird that in some ways, we think like, oh yeah, if I go and I run four days a week for 10 years, you know, my leg, the muscles in my legs are going to be different, right? And my heart's going to be different. My lungs are going to be different. My circulatory system is going to be different. Like why wouldn't it have, you know, um, systemic you know, difference, uh, produce systemic differences, improvements in, in your brain. And a lot of that's thought to do with like oxygenation of the brain. So, um, there's there like people with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Um, my understanding of like research in that area is that like what they're a great way to get improvements in memory is simply to make them more cardiovascularly fit. So raise their VO2 max basically. And it, it you know, probably because that is improving the um, blood flow to the brain. That's so interesting. And it's yeah. so important to hear because there's a lot of information out there these days. And, you know, there's a lot of trends in fitness, but there seems to be more of a movement these days against doing the um, conversationally paced runs all the time and right, right. high intensity interval training, you know, you're, you're a fitness, yeah, yeah. you're a running writer, you understand. So it's, it's comforting yeah. to hear the value at, at any age of doing um, the, the good old, conversationally paced run, which right. it comes very natural to runners. We, yes. we all crave those runs. First of all, it, it provides connection to community because yes. you can talk to people while you're running. Right. And right. it also allows you to, as you referenced earlier, it's really hard to think about your tasks when you're thinking about your pace and your interval workout. But when right. you're running and thinking about maybe a problem you need to solve that, yeah. that sweet spot is conversational pace. And so this all makes perfect sense. And it's nice yeah. to hear that evidence to back it up. I yeah. have a question about one of the studies referenced in the book, and that is the study about um, people who are more sedentary. When a study was conducted on them, when it was found that it, there weren't the same benefits for them when they ran, because they basically felt like crap after they ran right. and as a result, right. their brains right. didn't change as much. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I guess the reason I wanted to ask it more specifically is because there's a lot of folks out there right now who aren't feeling so great during their runs, particularly because they're getting over yet another COVID surge and just trying to return running and not feeling great. Yeah. Speak about that a little bit and specifically for those folks to give them some encouragement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess like in general, and I'm sure, I'm sure you too, have these conversations more than I do, but, you know, I hear from like, it's usually like friends of my wife 
they're like, oh, I started, you know, because they think all I want to talk about is running. You know, oh, I started running and, and boy, is it hard. And, and I'm like, slow down. <laughs> Like, like you can cover the distance, like cover the distance, like, like it shouldn't, you know, if we're talking about conversational pace, it shouldn't be hard. Right. Um, and so the less said, you know, people who are sedentary, I think like just never, and I understand if you don't really know how to go about doing it, um, that's, you know, nobody wants to go out and be miserable three times a week with no hope of it ever changing. But I would think if they, um, if they would give themselves to a operate at the right intensity level and B uh, give it a month of, of consistency at what might seem too easy and C, you know, get a good, you know, find a coach, you know, knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. So I, th I think that's why in, 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 in the, the study that you referenced, which I don't recall off the top of my head, but it's, you know, it's pretty easy to find. It's pretty easy to imagine that you could have a study where people are like, Oh my God, I feel worse. And the only reason that they're happy afterwards is because it's over, um, you know, which is different than like, you know, what we're fortunate enough to experience. Like it feels good while I'm doing it. And I feel good afterwards, you know, I'm, often happy it's over, but that's, um, but I'm also happy while I'm doing it. As to the COVID people, um, so um, if you're saying people who had, co you know, who were runners and then got COVID, yeah, so actually, so um, I actually wrote an article for um, Runners World um, in the past, hmm, whatever, however many months, where um, a doctor in uh, New York looked at injury rates of people who had had COVID, of runners who had had COVID, and their injury rates um, spiked like crazy once they resumed running. And the theory was that, you know, that losing time to COVID wasn't the same as like, oh, I went on vacation, didn't run for a week. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're seriously ill. And, and, and lost a lot of not only the training time, but, but, you know, lost some physical capacity in that time. Right. And so then when they come back, they're probably, they still have the memory of what their Strava or log or whatever said that they could do. Um, but that's not where their body is at that time. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I, I mean, my, I would guess I would say to them, in the same way I would say to beginners, like, like slow down and give it time. And I mean, especially if you've already been a runner, you know, it'll come around eventually. I mean, maybe not if you have long COVID, um, but, but if you've had, you know, sort of a more short-term episodic case, but again, I think based on like that, that study that I wrote about, I mean, the indication is that, you know, two weeks lost to COVID, is a lot more detrimental than two weeks lost to even Achilles tendonitis or vacation or whatever, uh, life getting in the way. So, so two weeks might mean the same as if you didn't run for a month. I don't know. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot as coaches. And that's a question I had is, you know, we get a lot of our runners who've had COVID or just coming off of COVID saying like, I need to get out for my mental health. I need to go run for my right, mental health. Right. But we're telling them don't run right now or right, you know, take it right. slow or run and walk or right. so what, you know, what, especially we just talked a little bit before about running being that perfect kind of consistency and the perfect yeah. intensity. What would you tell runners who are coming back from COVID and need to come back gradually about balancing that activity for mental health and yeah. coming back carefully so that they avoid injury? 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess I hadn't thought about that. Um, maybe if their schedule allowed, like like more frequent shorter belts. I don't know. Um, what do you, what do you say? <laughs> we're still struggling with that, but you know, we're encouraging them to walk. Yeah. Um, you know, walking is, and then yeah. we eventually yeah. add back in the, the run-walk intervals. Um, but, you know, a lot, and, and understandably, we, we feel the same way. They say, I, you know, I need this for my mental health. I need to go out for a run. And yeah. um, we are seeing, like you said, sort of that setback, people who are coming back too quickly, uh-huh. ending up struggling for a lot longer than those who are coming back more gradually. So that's really what we're, we're trying yeah. to balance that, um, you know, saying, okay, how about go for a walk or how about go for an easy bike ride or something? So it's yeah, not yeah, quite, yeah. like you said, it's not quite that same. Um, they're not getting the same right. runners high they're not get, getting the same endorphins but they're at least feeling like they're doing something so it's it's, right. it's definitely a struggle for us as coaches and and frankly you know more than half of our runners in the last month had have had covid wow. um, this yeah wow. it's it's every day we're getting somebody else saying you know I, I tested positive today and it's just a real um balancing act uh encouraging patients and coming back because like you said we're finding same thing it's not like they've gone away for vacation for a week it's actually um you know much more of a of a process of coming back so yeah. But but the number one um, com- complaint that we get, or the number one feedback we get, is I got to get out. I got to go for a run for right, my, right, right. My mental health, and that's right. uh, and we get we get that. So that's right. what we're trying to balance as coaches. Yeah. yeah. But what's encouraging about the studies in your book is that a break from running for those who have run for many years doesn't change the chemistry in your brain. Like right. you know, the right. the long term effects of running are cumulative, and just like your muscular development, your neuromuscular development, it will come back. But the good news is, is that all of that development in your brain as a result of all those miles, isn't taken away by taking that break as a result of COVID. So that's right. Like that's That's another data point we can use to encourage our runners who are wanting to run so badly and they're just not quite there, but to this point, everyone responds also differently. So it's, it's also a little bit of, um, trying things out, seeing what works for someone may not work for someone else, but we are finding that those who jump back in too quickly a week later are exhausted again. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, a, a lot of your, people you coach have probably unfortunately had to deal with, uh, you know, not a, like more than a minor injury. And um, I bet if they were to, if they've had more than one of those bouts, they would probably realize that the times when they sort of erred on the side of caution early on in coming back ultimately meant, you know, six weeks later or eight weeks later that they were further ahead than, um, than if they, you know, I got to get back on it, you know, which I completely understand. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's tough. So speaking of injury, how have you, um, managed during the times we assume you've been injured, um, because you use running as a tool, Uh um, in your toolbox, what do you do when you're injured and what advice do you have for others who are injured? Who also, um, so yeah, I'll preface that by saying I do. I spent a fair amount of time trying not to get injured, um, um, which involves sort of to the extent that I train, but keeping my running at only maybe like a B plus effort level. Um, I'm 58. I, you know, like I said, my PRs were when Bill Clinton was president, Um, you know, so, so there's not much justification for like killing myself um, to, to, 
to run a little bit faster. Um, so, so, so that's part of it. And then the other part of sort of my prehab rather than rehab aspect would be, um, you know, I probably spend 20 minutes a day on various strengthening and stretching and all that sort of stuff. I still get okay. I still get injured, obviously. Um, when I do, I, um, I ride a bike in the basement. Um, I mean, I, so I ride a bike, I've already like in the basement basically. Um, and, um, and I, uh, I, you know, by now, I mean, I've, uh, <laughs> at some point, maybe I will have a career ending injury, but by now I, you know, I mean, every injury of course is easy to think like, okay, this is it. I'm never going to get back, but you know, most of us do most of the time. So, um, by now I know like, okay, eventually I'll, I'll get back. Right. And I'll get back to be able to do what I want. So right now I can't. And so that doesn't mean I should just give up. Um, I need to, if anything, uh, be that mo much more diligent about my self-care um, and find ways to just sort of get through each day um, feeling like when I go to bed, like, okay, yeah, that was good. Like I didn't, I didn't make my injury worse. Um, I did enough to, to, um, you know, did enough to, to get a little mental boost, um, from riding in the basement. And, um, and I, I still try to, I mean, you know, it's rare to have an injury that's so bad. You can't just go out and walk, you know, so I still get out and walk and, you know, go for walks with my dog and my wife or my dog and my wife, um, you know, just to be outside. Um, cause that's so powerful for mental health. Um, but the other thing, I mean, for, you know, for, you know, for runners specifically is, you know, we're used to sort of working toward a project, working toward a goal. And, you know, I said, okay, well, my goal now is to be able to get back to running like, like I want to. And, and that sort of makes it easier for me on a day-to-day -day basis to then like, okay, well, if I get, it's going to be hard enough when I get, when I'm able to resume running. And so if I lose that much more cardiovascular fitness, that's going to make it that much tougher. So I'll go ride once or twice a day in the basement, you know, um, despite it's, you know, it's obviously not the same as running on the trails, um, but it's better than not doing it. So that, that's, that's what works for me. Um, is sort of like taking that as, a, as my new project, my new goal and, and every day thinking, how can I, what can I do today to best, um, most quickly get back to the goal of, of running like I want to. Yeah. We like to say, get a PR in recovery. Yeah. That's what, yeah, yeah. That's what we like to say. So, yeah. so I, have, I have a question in your book, you talk about um, two types of anxiety, trait anxiety and state anxiety. And um, talk to us a little bit about that balance between like, you know, a runner who has um, anxiety at a race, at a race start, that would be, I think, an example of state anxiety. It's the, it's, it's that moment, um, you know, what's going on. It's the, the conditions around them. Um, you know, how does, how does a runner kind of use, you know, somebody who runs to, to, um, to relieve anxiety, yeah. how does a runner then when they find themselves, when running is causing the anxiety, how do they then, how do they manage that? Yeah. So, um, I should preface this by saying I'm, I'm blessed to have, um, I have no personal experience with anxiety. Um, so I can, all I can do is talk about what people have told me. Um, but, um, some of my friends who, who struggle with that, you know, say that the most effective thing to them was sort of like exposure to the situation, like gradual exposure to the situation that, um, that, that can cause that anxiety. Um, so, so like a, a friend of mine who, loves to run, 
um, uses it to manage her anxiety, but for years like avoided braces because of she could just imagine all the bad things that would happen, not only to her body, but just sort of like she would imagine things that like, oh, someone will show up and set off a bomb at the starting line, that sort of thing. Um, she gradually like first started running with others um, to, to like get used to that sort of I'm hemmed in in a crowd sort of thing. And just over time, very, um, very gradually exposed herself to sort of more and more um, discomfort thing, you know, forms of discomfort in that way. Um, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm probably not the best person to ask about this because I don't know much about that on a personal level. Sorry. No, that's okay. You've had enough um, experience in conversations with people, it sounds like, to give us some good, uh, you know, some good advice. But, um, you know, that's just something that we see that we do see, you know, a lot of runners who have anxiety and they then use the running to deal with anxiety, but sometimes yeah. running you know, not being able to stick to a schedule will cause an anxiety. Right. You know, as coaches, right, right. they'll say, oh no, I didn't get this run in. And, um, you know, helping, you know, we also wonder is, you know, is there ever too much of a good thing? Any, any, you know, is there anything such as too much of, of a good thing when it comes to running? Like can a runner get, work themselves up or, you know, cause sure. mental health um, yes. challenges because of running? Right, right, right. So, um, yeah. So here we're back on more familiar ground, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so for a lot of us who, who, you, who le rely, not rely on, but, you know, use running to help our mental health. Um, one of the appealing aspects is this, like a, a bit of a feeling of like, Oh, I sort of have control more over my, over my situation or my destiny. Um, and yeah, that can definitely be taken too far um, to the point where you lose control. <laughs> you lose control over having control, right? Um, when, you're, when you find yourself like just do, blocking other aspects of your life out or, um, or, or uh, what, doing so much that then, you know, that you hurt that you wind up getting hurt or um or so tired or so uh, you know worn down that you can't then meet the the goals that you set for yourself that you could if you like backed off a little bit it is a really really can be a really really fine line um i certainly had times back when i could you know run a lot more without having to worry about get hurt and without it taking all day um yeah, I definitely used to just like, well, everything else sucks, but well, I got 120 miles in this week. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't a really a problem because I didn't have anything else. I didn't have much else going on in my life at the time. You know, I just, I was single, I worked and that's, that's all I did, you know, and it didn't take, didn't take a whole lot of time. But if I were to do that now, that would be insane. Um, um, you know, like I would be gone for, I would, other parts of my life would suffer as a result of my dedication to my running. And um, that should never be the case, you know, regardless of the state of your mental health. Um, you know, it doesn't take all, it, does, it shouldn't take all of your day and all of your energy to be even a really, really dedicated runner. And it shouldn't detract from, you know, your personal life, your professional life, all that sort of stuff. When you are, when you, I think if, you, if you're honest with yourself and you find that that's happening, then that's certainly a sign that you might be leaning on running a little too much. Um, um, 
I mean, yeah. If you, uh, I, I've I've definitely been through. I've definitely had times where, like, if I had seen video of myself running, I would have said, "Holy hell, that guy! That guy needs help!" Like, because I, you know, I'd be out running while the, you know, I'd be like limping through runs and stuff. Because like, oh, I got to get in. I got, I got to, you know, like, oh no, no, it'll be fine today. Um, even though I've limped through the last week, you know, um, I wouldn't do that now. Um, but I certainly thirty years ago I was in that situation once in a while. I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but but basically, if I think if you find that, again, regardless of the state of your mental health, if like your your dedication to your running is detracting from other parts of your life, that's 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 a little that's a little much. Um, you know, it's just running. I mean, it's it's a wonderful one of the best things in in all of our lives, but you know, it shouldn't. In the same way, like if your job detracts from your personal and, and athletic life, that's a sign that that's too much, you know? Um, if you have a relationship that sort of means that that somehow negatively affects the rest of your relationships, that's not a healthy relationship, you know? And, and so if that relationship was with running, um, yeah, it's time to step back and, and take a look at things. Well, that's a great note to end on. You have just been a tremendous wealth of information, Scott, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about all of your other books, including um, the book you wrote with Meb. So we'll have to have you back on to talk about those as well. But you okay. really um, have done such a service. And we, we know the book's been out since 2018, but we hope by having you on today, we've highlighted the book and that more people will go out and read it. It's also available on Audible mm -hmm. for those who like to listen to things mm -hmm. while they run. Um, it's really a treasure. And we so appreciate you not only taking the time to write this book, but also to share your story and be vulnerable and share what you went through to help other runners. And we wish you the best of luck in your training for JFK. Thank you. Thank you. And um, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I will say real quickly that um, don't worry, I'm not the narrator on the, on the audio book. <laughs> It's a, it's a real person. So, so. <laughs> you do have, do you have more books coming out soon? Um, uh, so in the spring, um, a book I co-wrote with um, Mark Coogan, who is a, a elite coach. Uh, yeah. So we, and I, he and I have a book coming out in, in the spring, uh, like, like a sort of advanced training book. Awesome. Yeah. Great. We'll link to that and we'll link to your other books in the show notes. And are you also on social media? I'm on. Yeah. Um, Twitter at Emmy Scott. So me, Scott Douglas, Emmy for Maine or Emmy for me. I'm not sure, but Emmy Scott Douglas at Emmy Scott Douglas on Twitter. Yep. All right. We'll, we'll link to that as well. Thank you so much, Scott. And Thank happy you. Running. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others. And please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.